And turn again in your copy of God's Word, this time to our uh, New Testament book of Matthew. Our text before us this morning is Matthew uh, chapter 6. You can find this on page 811 of the Pew Bible uh, located in the rack in front of you. Uh, Matthew 6, we'll be reading verses 25 to 34. This is a very familiar passage that addresses the anxieties that so many of us feel in our life uh, and in our hearts. It is based on, or uh, it is founded on, the scriptures that we studied last week. That we have a treasure in heaven, uh, that we have our eyes set on the things of God, and that we serve Christ as our master, not the things of this world. With all that in mind, with that as our foundation, hear now the words of our Lord, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown to the oven, how much more Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Father, you know the anxieties of our hearts this morning. You know how they are all over the place, how we fear things rational and irrational. We fear things small and great. We are anxious about the near future and the distant future. Lord, if it can be imagined and feared, we can do it in our doubting hearts. And so we pray in these next couple minutes, Lord, that you would address our anxieties. You would speak to us as your children. You would restore your promises to us and you would give us faith to believe those promises, to trust in you and to rest at peace under the fatherly provision of you, our God of grace. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen. Last month, there was an article in the New York Times. The article had this title, There is a Mental Health Crisis Among Children. Maybe you've seen this article, or maybe you've seen others like it. I've seen many over the last few months. The article itself refers to the fact that doctors are reporting that there are 
record numbers of anxiety reported amongst children and teenagers especially. There are rising numbers of depression, rising numbers of eating disorders, uh, rising numbers of all sorts uh, of other symptoms of an anxious heart and an anxious mind. If you work in healthcare, if you work in schools, if you work with children, this, these stats don't surprise you. And we wish we could comfort ourselves in saying, well, this is all just related to the pandemic. And as soon as the pandemic goes away, it will all go away. Well, the problem with that, the article points out that these rising numbers started well before COVID. And another similar article in the Washington Post, the reporter notes that four out of every 10 teenager feels, quote, persistently sad or hopeless. Four out of every ten teenager feels persistently sad or hopeless. Now, as the people of God, we don't look at this and say, what a strange world out there. Thank God that this doesn't affect us in here, right? None of us are that naive. We look at the pain and the the sorrow and the worry and the world around us, and we know that that has affected our own hearts as well. And if we deny it, we just have to read the words of Jesus, who himself addressed his followers as an anxious people. So we see the pain and the sorrow around us. We grieve with those who are suffering, with those who are sorrowing. The difference between the Christian and the world is not that we don't suffer, not that we aren't affected by these things. The difference is that we have been shown where to go for hope. We have been shown who to turn to for consolation and peace. We have been given a place to take our every worry and anxiety. We have been given a gospel to believe and to hope in. And so Jesus comes to a people not ignoring our fears or worries or anxieties. He comes and addresses our very fears. He calms our fears the same way he has addressed us over and over again by the Sermon on the Mount, by bringing us to our Father in heaven. Again, we see, as we have seen over and over, God is the Father that we so desperately need. So I want to show you a truth this morning, and that is that Jesus calms our fears on earth by bringing us to our Father in heaven. Jesus calms our fears on earth by bringing us to our Father in heaven. So let's ask this big question before we get to our outline. What do we fear? What do we worry about? What are we anxious over? Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, which you will eat or which you will drink, nor about your body, which you will put on. Sort of these two topics to be anxious over our life and our body. We worry about our life means we worry about the food that we eat and the, the, the liquid that we drink. We worry about our body. We worry about the, the clothes that we will put on. Now, you know as well as I do, this is not an exhaustive list of the things we can worry about, right? As I prayed earlier, we are experts in dreaming up things to worry about. We can make an endless list of even that which we've worried about in the last 24 hours. Jesus addresses our anxieties, and he addresses them very simply with a command. He says to us, do not be anxious. It's just that easy, isn't it? (laughs) 
Just don't be anxious. In fact, it's so clear. He says it three times. He says it in verse 25. He says it in verse 31. He says it in verse 34. Do not be anxious. He is commanding his followers that when we trade our treasures on earth with treasures in heaven, when we trade our vision for things of earth for the things of heaven, when we trade our master of mammon and money for a master who is Christ, we are commanded, do not be anxious. Now, if only it were that easy, right? If only that's all we needed. Oh, of course, I'm not supposed to be anxious and I could just sort of move on and my anxieties would all just go away. If only it were that easy. There's more here in Jesus's words than just the command. He shows us how. In that probably the most famous verse of this section, verse 33, we read Jesus tells us how to obey the command, to not to be anxious, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That verse 33 is our key verse in understanding this section. We're going to look at that verse in particular. We're going to pull it apart, and through the lens of verse 33, we're going to go back and read the rest of the passage. And I wanted to show you that Jesus commands us to not be anxious, and then he gives us these two helps, I'm calling them. These two ways in which he helps us not to be anxious. The first help he gives us is he gives us a promise to believe. He gives us a promise to believe. You see the promise there in verse 33. All these things will be added to you. These things are the things of the world. Clothes, food, drink. These are the things that plague us, that cause us to worry. And Jesus says, God will give all of these things to you. So you see the logic is oh so simple. Don't worry because God will give you everything you need. Sounds simple, doesn't it? So simple that Jesus gives us two examples, two illustrations of God's provision for his creation. The first example he gives us in verses 26 and 27 is the, the example that God feeds the birds. Look at verse 26. Jesus tells us, look at the birds of the air. He says, you have trouble believing that I will take care of everything for you? Well, go outside and look at the birds. How does it go with them? Well, they don't plant and they don't harvest, but they're still fed. They still have everything that they need. Jesus tells us that God loves us more than them, so he will feed you. Now, of course, this isn't telling us the the, the way to not worry is not to do any work. (laughs) He's not telling us don't plant or don't harvest. He's telling us don't worry. The, The very work that he gives us to do is often the ways in which he provides for our needs. And so we're to look at the birds and say, well, they don't work and God takes care, or they don't plant or harvest, and they're still fed. And that takes us to the first sort of truth that Jesus plants in these examples. And that is in verse 27, where he says, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life, to the length of your life? And that is the simple truth that worry is powerless, right? Worry does nothing. No matter how much you worry, no matter how much you think of something, no matter how much you obsess over it and you grow more and more anxious, it does nothing. It can add nothing. It cannot even extend your life by a single hour. 
I read a statistic this week, and it said that 85% of the things we worry about don't ever happen. 85%. So you think about all the hours this last week that you worried about something. And how much of that actually comes to pass? You have spent an inordinate amount of time being anxious over things that never happen. Instead, look at the birds. Look how God feeds the birds as an example for how he cares for our needs. And then the second example is that God clothes the fields. It's the exact same logic, exact same premise, verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, right? They don't make their own clothing. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Even mankind and the, the culmination of the glory and the beauty of the kingdom under Solomon, even all of that can't compare to the beauty and the glory of how God clothes the field, the beauty and the glory of the flowers. And God will clothe you. Because God clothes the fields, he will clothe you. It's the same logic. Then he comes and he addresses us at the end of verse 30. And he gives us another truth about worry. Not only is worry powerless, he says, oh, you have little faith. Worry or anxiety is the opposite of faith. It's the opposite of faith. Or as one commentator has written He says the root of anxiety is unbelief. Unbelief in our roots and our foundation will bear the fruit of anxiety. God tells us he will provide for us. He promises to take care of us. Here's the problem. We don't believe him. We have a hard time believing him. Jesus helps our weak faith by saying, look at the birds. Look at the fields. Do you see how God cares for them? You know as well as I do that if your faith was rock solid, if it never doubted, if it never disbelieved, then you would not bear the fruit or the bad fruit of anxiety and worry that comes from that root of unbelief. God shows us, Jesus tells us of these examples so that we would be helped in believing that as God has cared for them, birds and fields and flowers, that he will likewise care for us. But it's not just an example of something, because Jesus presses home this idea twice with both examples. The key point is that you are of more value than these things. He says it in verse 26, are you not of more value than they? He says it at the end of verse 30, will he not much more clothe you? So think about this for a moment. Jesus is telling us that as God looks out on his created world, certain things are valued more than others, right? What makes something or someone valuable? How how does God distinguish between that which is of more value than something else? Well, if you think about the meaning of the word itself, what is something valuable? It it has certain distinctive characteristics. There's something about the thing or the person or the object that is distinct that makes it of more value. 
Right? If you reach down and pull up a, a, a handful of rocks, some gravel from your driveway, and in the midst of those ordinary rocks is this bright, shining diamond, well, something in your hand is worth a whole lot more than the rest of the ordinary stones in your hand, right? Because that diamond has in and of itself distinctive characteristics. And so God is telling us that we have something distinct about us that makes us more valuable to him. What is that? Well, in one sense, as he looks out at his creation, we see that God creates flowers and he creates birds and he creates humans. What is distinct about humans in that equation? Well, it's that we're marked by the image of God, right? Mankind is marked by the image of God. Therefore, creatures are valuable because we are marked by his image. And so it's obvious to us. It's obvious that we are more valuable than a bird or more valuable than a flower. But when he really pushes the point home, it's not that we are somehow different than those things. It's the one who is making the value judgment is different. Because he tells us who this God is, and he is our Heavenly Father. When our Heavenly Father looks at us, he doesn't merely see his creatures, he sees his children. And as the children of God, we are valuable to him because we are marked, not by his image, it's true, but more particularly, we are marked by the love of God. So what is your distinctive characteristic? Right? Why would God look at, at you and value you more than others? What so sets you apart that you can be so sure that this promise is true for you? Here's what we read of God saying to his people in the Old Testament about why they are so valuable and special. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Why? Well, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why are we precious to the Lord? What is our distinct characteristic? It's not because we're so big and strong and rich and powerful, is it? It's not because we're so special when we're compared to the rest of those around us. It's because God has chosen to put his love on us. And that's it. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. God makes us his children because he loves us. You are of much more value to God, not because you are so special. It's not because you inherently are valuable. It's because your father in heaven values you. Do you see the difference? Your value is not because of who you are. It's because of who he is. And how he, who he now declares you to be, not as a stranger, but as a child of God. That God brings you by way of adoption into his family. And so as you believe the gospel, you believe the promise that he will care for you. He will supply your every need. What does all this have to do about with worry? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us 
in his letter that we are to cast all our anxieties on him, on God, because he cares for you. God's care for us is the very reason that we cast our anxieties on him and face our worry, our fear, our anxiety with faith. You see, we're not loved and valued because we're such wonderful people. We're loved and valued because God, in his abundant mercy, in his sovereign grace, has poured his love out upon us. And that is a promise that we must believe. We read this and we must believe that we are actually of more value. We believe that God loves and cares for us. We believe that he will give us all things. You see, it doesn't feel like that very often, does it? If my confidence in God valuing me has to do with how wonderful and righteous I am, that is a recipe for constant worry, isn't it? But if I am believing the promise that despite my sin, despite the fact that I have no value in and of myself, but that God has chosen to place his love upon me, that's a promise that I believe. And believing that unchanging, unfading promise of God is how we as his children face our worry with faith. Believe the promise that he has given us. That's the first help that Jesus has as we face our worry. He gives us a promise to believe. But faith in God's word, faith in God's promises lead to actions, don't they? And so we see secondly in our text that he gives us a kingdom to pursue. We go back to verse 33. He not only gives us a promise to believe, he gives us a kingdom to pursue, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This idea of seeking, that's the idea of pursuing, it's to run after something, it's to try to obtain something, to try to get something. And Jesus sets up a contrast here. Two groups of people, the Gentiles on one side in verse 32, and then his own children on the other side. And he says, we are pursuing two different objects. Two different realities. He's not setting up, of course, an an ethnic contrast. This is a spiritual contrast between the people of the kingdom of God and the people of the kingdom of this world. And the Gentiles are the ones who pursue material concerns. Verse 32. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. What are these things? Food, drink, clothes, The things of this world, the material concerns of this world. Not that Christians don't have material concerns, but the Gentile, the unbeliever, seeks after those things above the things of God. And so Jesus, it's it's as if he's warning us. And the warning is, are you pursuing material concerns? Or where are you tempted in your life to pursue the things of the world. I mean, if you could just sort of take an audit of everything you worried about last week, and if you sort of, if, if you had this film of all the worries that you had last week, how much of they were because you are tempted to pursue material things? Because your heart is going after, your attention is flowing towards, you are trying to obtain 
the things of this world. Because when we face anxiety, right, here is the lie that we believe. The lie is this. If I can just get enough stuff, I won't worry anymore. Right? If I can just get a little bit more of this, that, or the other, if I can get enough food, enough drink, enough clothes of the right type or the right style or more of this, that, and the other, then I won't worry anymore. See, that's a lie, isn't it? Because there's never an end to our worry. We see in verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is saying you always are going to have enough today to worry about. It's never going to go away. You will have enough tomorrow to worry about and the next day to worry about. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson has written that anxiety can never be cured by getting more of what we already have. Anxiety can never be cured by getting more of what we already have have. Maybe you have noticed that sometimes the most anxious people in this world are the people with the most stuff. (laughs) And that anxiety, it doesn't go away. The pursuit never ends. The pursuit of material concerns will never satisfy. It's like that hamster wheel, right? Where you're just running like crazy, but not going anywhere, not achieving anything. And in contrast, To the pursuit of material concerns, Jesus calls us to pursue spiritual concerns. He tells us what is the right object after which we seek. What is the right object of our pursuit? Back in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We can summarize that, I think, by just calling those spiritual concerns. The kingdom of God is something that is already ours by grace, isn't it? When Jesus has come, he says the kingdom of God is here. And he brings his followers by faith into his kingdom. We are given access to the reign of King Jesus. That's what his kingdom is. It's his reign over people here, there, and to the very ends of the earth. That's why we pray that his kingdom would come. It's already here, so we don't pursue it to sort of get into it. We pursue and seek after it more and more. We want his kingdom to be brought to bear more and more in our hearts, more and more in our lives, more and more in our communities, more and more in our world. We pursue the things of the kingdom of God. And then secondly, second part is to pursue righteousness. This is referring to living righteously. To pursue his righteousness is to aim to live a holy life. It is to aim to follow God's word, to obey his commands, to seek his face. It's not something that we ever will achieve in this life, but Jesus gives it to us uh, as the path that we walk in our grateful obedience to him. So the Christian is marked, the followers of Jesus are marked by pursuing spiritual concerns. And so, so much of worry is born out of pursuing the wrong thing. Because that will never satisfy. It will only breed more and more worry. Instead, Jesus tells us to pursue the kingdom of God first. That in itself is an act of faith, isn't it? 
to say, I'm not going to pursue the material things I know I need. I'm going to instead prioritize the things of God and his kingdom above the things of this world. That is an act of faith. That is an act to believe that God really will provide all that he has promised. How do we do that? And how do we, how do we seek after God's kingdom? How do we seek after his righteousness? Well, I'm not going to give you a list of things to do this week. But I think it might be helpful to think about the various areas in which we live under the reign of our king. How do we seek his kingdom and righteousness in the different places he's called us to in life. I mean, it's just you as an individual Christian. That you are called and commanded not to worry, but to seek first his kingdom. What does that look like in your life as an individual? As you follow the pattern that God lays out for us of work and rest. That we are to pursue our worldly callings for six days. And we are to rest and worship on the Sabbath day. That in your worldly call, your vocation. What are you going to get up and do tomorrow? Maybe you're going to go into the office. Maybe you're going to go into the classroom and study. Maybe you're going to work at home. Maybe you have all these various other pursuits where you rub shoulders with other people of this world. Gentiles, as Jesus says, who are pursuing material concerns. What does that look like for you in that setting this week? To not seek the world or these things, but instead to serve God. To seek after his kingdom. What does it mean to come on your day of rest? That day one and seven that God gives us a Sabbath rest. To do what? To pursue spiritual concerns. Do you take advantage of that day, of that time, the Lord's day that God gives us to set aside our material concerns and to seek after him and him alone. What about in your home, in your household? What might it look like for you to pursue God's kingdom there? If you're married, how do you focus on spiritual matters in your marriage, in your home? What do you talk about? How do you spend your time? How do you care for and love your spouse and encourage them in their walk with Christ? If you are parents, if you have children, what does it look like for you to pursue God's kingdom as a parent. So often in this world, we are tempted to care about academics and extracurricular activities and getting a good job or getting into a good school and and on and on and on and all of these good things but can become worldly concerns. The spiritual concern of Christian parents is to ask, how is my child walking with the Lord? Are my children hearing the gospel? Are they being prayed over to believe the gospel? We pursue God's kingdom in our marriages as parents in our workplace, in our day of rest. How do we pursue God's kingdom together as a church? You know, it seems sort of obvious that we wouldn't be worried about material concerns as a people, but we are, aren't we? We can get stuck as a church caring more about worldly concerns than spiritual concerns. We can prioritize a budget or a building or, or numbers or how the, the physical trappings of our ministry and get stuck in worldly concerns. And so we forget the spiritual body that is to be nourished and grown by word and sacrament and prayer and the fellowship of the saints. We seek God's 
kingdom and all of these areas of our life and more because we are seeking to submit to his rule in every part of our life. As a child of God, as an employee, as a student, as a church member, as an elder, as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, as a friend, as a neighbor, in all of these spheres of our lives, we seek the kingdom of God by submitting to his rule. And the more that we do this, the more we will face all of those worries and all of those anxieties by faith in the promises of our God. You see, Jesus' command here is so simple and yet so difficult, isn't it? He just commands you, don't worry. Don't be anxious. But he knows how hard that is for us to do, and so he gives us these Two helps. He gives us his promise and he gives us his kingdom. And then he goes on and he will secure those things for us. He will go to the cross and the tomb and he will be raised as the victorious king over all of his enemies, over death itself. And he will secure the kingdom forever and ever. And in his resurrection, He brings us as adopted children to his heavenly father so that we trust that he is our father in heaven who cares for every one of our needs. As the apostle Paul put it, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If we are of such value, that our Father in heaven would pay for our life by the very life of his one and only beloved Son, how much more will he also with him graciously give us all things? Dear brother and sister in Christ, your Father has paid your ransom by the blood of his Son. So now believe the promises, seek the kingdom, and face your worry with faith today. Let us pray. Our Lord, we so want to be free of our anxieties. We so wish that we could speak a word and they would disappear. We would love to sleep long and peacefully through the night. We would love to not be bombarded by those unwanted and unbidden worries throughout the day. We would love to be free of those anxieties that can, for some of us, even cripple us. And so, God, we pray that you would grant us the gift of faith in your promises. Faith that we are your beloved children. Faith that you value us above all things on this earth. And that as we believe those promises of God, you would calm our fears And you would give us a different path, a different kingdom, different priorities around our soul and our lives. Lord, you would show us this week what it looks like to pursue your kingdom, to seek after your righteousness, to be marked as the redeemed people by your grace, that we would go forth graciously and generously obeying all that you command us to do. Lord, help us by your mercy face our anxieties with faith in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.